Would you pray with me? Our fathers, we bow before you today. We do indeed lift our voice and sing your mighty power. We do shout joyfully before you because you are the rock of our salvation, because you are our refuge and our high tower. We thank you, Father, that all of creation reflects and declares your power, might, and majesty. From the smallest atom to the largest and furthest galaxy, there's no part of creation in which you've not staked your claim, over which you do not rule and reign as sovereign Lord. Even our salvation declares your power and grace because we were dead in trespasses and sins and you've made us alive together in Christ. You took out our stony, unbelieving hearts and have given us fleshy hearts that are responsive to the prompting of your spirit and you've worked faith and repentance and we rejoice in your goodness and power in our salvation and know that in the ages to come, you're going to unveil to us the riches of your grace to us in Christ. Even providence itself today declares to us your power and wisdom as you sustain all that you've created, as you uphold all things by the word of your mighty power, as you hold all things together, including every minute detail of our lives today. Here is a pillar upon which we may rest, O God, in your wise and holy and good providence toward us. Father, as we come before you today, we come as your people. We come as a needy people in spite of the rich provisions of your grace, we find that we still fall short of your glory. We do not love you with our whole heart, and nor have we loved our neighbors as we love ourselves. And yet we stand upon the mighty gospel promise that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness for Christ's sake alone. So we come as a forgiven people. We come as a free people. We come to rejoice in all the goodness that you've poured out upon us. Father, our needs are varied today, but there's not a need with which we wrestle. There's not a load that we carry. There's not a burden that we feel that exceeds your power and goodness in our lives. We pray that you would work all things toward the one salvific end, that we may be more increasingly conformed to the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do specifically pray today for Landon and Jessica Ditto honeymooning in Cancun. We pray for their safety. We pray that you would fill them with peace. We pray that you'd fill their families with peace. We ask that you would restore them safe and sound and in a prompt fashion and in such a way that your goodness is seen and abounds toward them. For all of our needs today, we cast them upon you because we know that you care for us. We come and bring gifts today, your tithe and our offering. And in so doing, we recognize your lordship over all that we have and all that we would claim ownership. We Give willingly, we give joyfully, we give generously. We pray that you would take these gifts and expand your kingdom and use them to bring honor and glory to your name. For we are truly a glad-hearted people, citizens of a kingdom that will never end because our King rules and reigns forever. Our King, Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to um, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4. Someone had um, said this morning in our early morning prayer time that they thought this may be a first um, from a grace pulpit on a Sunday morning anyway that the book of Revelation um, had been preached from. Um, but all the signs of the apocalypse are coming together. Vandy starts the season 3-0. and The Chicago White Sox win the opening game of the World Series. And Tennessee falls to Alabama yesterday. It's all coming together. 
Revelation chapter 4. I have no charts this morning. I make no predictions this morning. But uh, this is a great text because it's a text about worship. In fact, there are over 12 songs in the book of Revelation that give us some indication of how heaven worships. And we do well to imitate or emulate heaven as they worship in the presence of the living God. Since the original sin in the Garden of Eden, we've all struggled on some level with the desire and the pursuit of self-deification. For those of you who have small children, it starts the moment you bring them home, and it seems to continue in an ever-upward fashion. The quest for independence and the desire to be the center of attention. We all struggle on some level to be our own God, to be our own master, to be the captains of our own fate, so to speak. It's the very heart of the temptation, the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. In verse 5, the serpent came and insinuated that by taking the fruit which God had forbidden, Adam and Eve could be like God. And in a very real sense, that's the very heart, the very core, the very essence of sin, is to be autonomous, to be independent, to be our own God, to be our own master. Now, humanists and New Agers... Pursue that openly and seemingly without apology. They believe really the serpents lie, that they can be like God. And to quote a very famous uh, actress, I think they're off on a broken limb, but they're unashamedly and unapologetically pursuing the end of self-deification. Certainly the media in every form play to the secret and not-so-secret desires for us to form and create our own reality. Uh, probably, uh, men, the, the most used piece of furniture in our house is the remote what? Say it. Control. Certainly is at my house, the remote control. I even love the sound of it. Remote control. That you could push a button across the room and change the volume and the picture and the color. I cannot tell you what a rush of excitement I feel when I grip that piece of household equipment. Having lived here eight weeks apart from my wife, when I went back, I was stunned, I was saddened, I was surprised, I was chagrined that um, I looked across the room and Melinda had the remote control. I had lost all semblance of control in my household. Well, I'm joking, but on some level, we really do love to control things. Even we conservative evangelical types in very subtle ways pursue self-deification through what may be called control strategies. We attempt in the process to control other people, even our families, uh, people in the workplace, our neighbors and so on. We may act like dictators. We may act weak, independent, and yet in very powerful ways still pursue the uh, control of other people. We may see life as a battle of wits and uh, try to manipulate people through our intellect and our wit and our charm, persuasion. We may even sometimes bully other people through threats and intimidation and anger. A phrase has been coined in our generation which describes all of this, and those of us who possess this desire to control in extreme fashion, it's called control freaks. You can do a Google search and find control freaks all over the Internet today. Such is our uh, desire for control. We're tempted to concentrate glory and honor and power on ourselves. We're tempted to sit on the throne of our lives and pursue a self-sovereignty, which may be a synonym for sin. Some of us today may be struggling with control issues. Some of us may be longing to exert more control over our lives, over our vocation and the course and direction of our lives. Some of us today may be lamenting the loss of control. 
The circumstances of our lives have spiraled out of control and we feel weak and helpless and powerless. Health challenges, family crises, work stress and conflict all spiral out of control and we feel deeply our own helplessness. Well, Revelation chapter 4 poses the question, who really is in control? Is it God or Caesar in the past? Or is it God or some idolatrous substitute in the present or future, including ourselves? This text specifically calls us to dethrone ourselves, to enthrone the only one who really is in control, and to sing his praise, to give him honor and homage and glory. He's the only one qualified to really control our lives because he's identified in verse 8 as the Lord God Almighty. There's only one king. There's only one sovereign. There's only one Lord and one master, the perfectly holy, all-powerful creator and sustainer of all things. And he's our God. And through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he also is our father. This text, no matter what you're position on end-time events may be, calls us, all of us, to get off the throne and to worship Him who really is in control. We begin in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, and I invite you to follow with me in the reading of God's Word as we go through verse 11. Verse 1, after these things, John says, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him, who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Revelation chapter 4 is the second of a series of visions given to John while he is on the isle called Patmos. These visions are inscripturated and directed immediately to the attention of the seven churches of Asia identified in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It was important truths for hard times. John was banished there 
as a prisoner of Rome. He was there because of the testimony of God and because of the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he says in chapter 1 and verse 9, the churches of Asia needed to know that the real king, the real power was not found in Rome, but it was found in heaven where there was one seated as a sovereign even over the emperor. John needed to be encouraged that one far greater than Caesar was ruling and governing the events of his life, that he was not on Patmos by accident. He was not there for any other reason but as God's emissary. He was there to receive this vision which has been inscripturated and given to the churches of Asia and then by application, of course, to God's people even to this very present day. You and I need to be reminded that in the midst of the circumstances of our lives today, perhaps you're in a season of great blessing and God is pouring out His goodness and things are well with you. You need to be reminded that there's no pride of ownership in that, that it comes from the hand of a sovereign God. Some of us are in seasons of great adversity. It's a time of trusting and trial. We're in the crucible of faith. And we need to be reminded as well that we're not at the mercy of blind mechanical forces spinning out of control. But there is one seated upon a throne that will never be shaken, seated upon a throne that will never be toppled. Our God reigns. And this text is a vivid reminder that God is seated upon that throne as an all-wise, all-powerful, all-gracious Father who's orchestrating and ordering the events of our lives for His greater glory and our eternal good. This passage begins with John being summoned to heaven. He hears a voice speaking to him like a trumpet. And a door is open there. And everything that John sees and everything that John senses in these 11 verses emphasizes this one grand truth. That God really is in control of all things. A couple of things in this text, actually three things, that I think emphasize and highlight that great truth. The first thing is exactly what John sees when he hears the voice and the door is open. The first thing he sees is the appearance of a throne. And I believe the appearance of the throne symbolizes God's sovereignty and God's control. As a kid growing up, I used to read the short stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip. And they pitched a tent in the country. And after their efforts, they fell asleep. And they were awakened, or Holmes was awakened in the middle of the night. And he saw the stars of heaven overhead. And he awakens Watson. And he says, Watson, what do you see? And he said, Holmes, I see millions of stars. He said, what does that Speak to you about, Watson. He says, well, astronomically, it says that there are billions and billions of stars and billions and billions of galaxies. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is in Leo. Time-wise, it tells me that it's probably a quarter after three. Theologically, it tells me that the Lord is all-powerful and we're very small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I would say that we're going to have a good day tomorrow. It's going to be beautiful weather. Holmes, what does it tell you? And Holmes says, Watson, you idiot, it tells me someone has stolen the tent. (laughs) Well, in the midst of all of these details in this great passage with the 
thundering, the lightning, the voices, the seven lamps of fire, the sea of glass-like crystal, and the four living creatures, and the 24 elders, there is one thing in the midst of the details that dominates and emerges. There is one seated upon the throne, and there's only one on that throne. And that's the Lord God Almighty. John sees the throne as heaven is opened. God's throne is the leading focal point in Revelation. It's the focal point in this passage. There's a verb tense that's used here that suggests that God is continuously on the throne. If you were to count how many times throne is mentioned in Revelation chapter 4, you'd discover it's used eight times. It's used over 40 times in the book of Revelation. And here's the great thing, folks. The throne is never empty. It's never unoccupied. It's never shared with another. There's always only one seated upon that throne. Only one worthy to be seated in the place of absolute control. And the good news is, it's not me. And the better news is, it's not you. It's God Himself seated in the position and in the posture as Lord over your life and Lord over my life. Eliza Doolittle and my fair lady shouts in exasperation, words, 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 I'm tired of words, show me. And this passage in graphic ways shows us the sovereignty and the majesty and the glory of God. The symbols show us who's really in control. His majesty, God's majesty and glory are pictured here as precious stones in verse 3. Around the throne there's a brilliant rainbow like a luminescent Halo surrounding the throne is a sign of God's covenanted mercy to his people. First Timothy 6 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the only wise God, immortal, invisible. And in the midst of these symbols, the sovereignty of God emerges. Angelic beings attend to his every command. And sights and sounds emanate from the throne, displaying unrivaled power. And from God's throne comes the fullness of the Holy Spirit, pictured here as seven lamps of fire that are burning. And before the throne is this sea of glass extending in every direction. Everything in the vision emphasizes the sovereignty of God and His right to control all things in our lives. Jonathan Edwards called this sovereignty of God a sweet doctrine, a comfortable doctrine. Might our hearts be comforted today. To know that no matter what seems to be slipping through our fingers, and no matter what we may face tomorrow, we know who holds tomorrow firmly and securely in the grasp of His great and magnificent grace. This is not the first time God appears in the Bible as seated upon a throne. In the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 6, it's the year that King Uzziah died. He had reigned 52 years in Jerusalem and now the king was dead. And Isaiah went into the temple, and there he saw another king, and he was high and holy and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. 150 years later, a captive in Babylon, a prophet by the name of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, has a vision. His eyes are opened, and he said, I saw one like the Ancient of Days, and he was seated upon the throne. And now some 500 years later, John is in the Spirit, and his eyes are opened, and guess what? Five hundred years later, there is still one seated upon the throne. Two thousand years later now, as we read this text today, there is still only one seated upon the throne. 
our great King who rules and reigns in sovereign majesty and in sovereign glory. John, apart from being in the Spirit perhaps, could not see beyond the circumstances. In verse 2, the Holy Spirit opened John's eyes to see who really was in charge of his circumstances. Otherwise, he couldn't see beyond the Isle of Patmos. And might the same Spirit of God today fall fresh upon us. Might the same Spirit of God open our hearts and our understanding today that we might be enabled to see that in the midst of the varied events of our lives, there's still one seated in sovereign majesty and glory. Perhaps my favorite epistle of Paul wouldn't be the book of Romans, oddly enough. It would be the book of Ephesians. Paul begins Ephesians in a burst of praise to God for God's mercies in Christ. And after he talks about the Father choosing for salvation and the Son redeeming and the Spirit coming to seal and apply the benefits of Christ to God's redeemed people, Paul then prays in Ephesians 1 that the eyes of the understanding of the Lord's people would be opened, that they might be able to see and comprehend all that God has done for them in Christ. John's eyes are open to see that it wasn't the emperor who was in control. And may our eyes be opened as well today to see who's really and truly in control of our lives, our businesses, our families, who's in charge as governor and ruler and Lord over all that we are and all that we have. Some years ago, J.B. Phillips, an English author, wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. In the midst of the Reformation and an ongoing debate between Luther and Erasmus, finally Luther says to him, your thoughts of God are altogether too human. I wonder if we're not smitten with the same malady sometimes, that our thoughts of God are altogether too human, that our God in our own estimation is too small. Can we trust him? For our marriages? Can we trust Him for our children? Can we trust Him for our families? Can we trust Him for our health? Can we trust Him for our employment, our work, and our business? Students, can you trust Him for your present? Can you trust Him for your future? And those children who may be present today, the words of the song, He's got the whole world in His hands, is sound theology. He does have the whole world in His hands. He's got you and me, brother, in His hands. He's got you and me, sister, in His hands. To every question of uncertainty today, we answer a resounding yes. God is in control of all things. May we not then get off the throne and give up every pretended illusion of control and worship this sovereign God. There's a second thing in this text very quickly, and that is the affirmations in the midst of the throne state God's qualifications to control all things. John sees in the midst of the throne in verse 6 four living creatures who in verse 8 unceasingly worship God and make some important affirmations about God. They ascribe to him in verse 8 holiness. They ascribe to him omnipotence. He's the Lord God Almighty. They ascribe to him eternity, eternality, who was and is and is to come. Their worship, if you will, their affirmations declare the intrinsic worth of God. And in so doing, they tell us why God is qualified as sovereign. 
They tell us why we can trust God's governance and rule over our lives. They tell us what kind of rule God exercises. God is eminently qualified to rule us. God is eminently qualified to rule as king and Lord and master because he is the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy. It describes his moral perfection. He is infinitely holy. It's the summation of all of his nature and of all of his being. It's what makes God, God. And incidentally, holiness is the only attribute in Scripture that's cubed. God is never said to be merciful, merciful, merciful. He's never said to be just, 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 or love, love, love. But he is said repeatedly in the Bible to be holy, holy, holy. It's the Hebrew way of emphasizing to a superlative degree God's moral perfection. That means, listen, that means that every exercise of his governance and of his sovereignty and of his rule in our lives is consistent with his impeccable character and his moral perfection. That simply means that you can trust this God. Abraham standing before the Lord in Genesis 18, 15, poses this great question. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right in his sight? And of course, the answer is yes, he will. And you can trust this God. We can trust this God because he is holy. God has unlimited capacity to rule and govern because the four living creatures ascribe to him almightiness. He's the Lord God Almighty. It translates a a Greek word used nine times in the book of Revelation. It's pantocrator. And you say, so what about that? Well, simply this. This particular word is never used of a human being. Never used of an angel. Never used of fallen angels. Never used of Satan, the malicious, malevolent adversary of God and God's people into his kingdom. Almighty is only used of one person and of one being. It's used of God alone. That means that whatever he wills to do, he will do. That means that no purpose or plan of his can be thwarted or checkmate or stopped. It's the ability of God in his overpowering strength. To accomplish all that he intends to accomplish. Some years ago, Melinda and our children and I were standing on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. I don't know if you've ever had that opportunity, but the immensity is beyond description. Postcards can't do it justice. Standing on that south rim and surveying this, this vast, um, cavernous, um, uh, geological marvel... My heart was moved to sing this old hymn. Fortunately for those around me, I did not sing. But my heart was moved to sing, How Great Thou Art. Standing on that rim, I sensed the awesomeness of God and His almighty power. He's qualified because He's holy to rule. He's qualified because He's almighty to rule. Three words summarize this characteristic of God. You could say... That God is able. And because he's able, Paul says he's able to do far beyond what we ask or think in prayer. Because he's able, he's able to make all grace abound toward us. He's able to rescue those of us who are in a season of temptation and adversity. He's able to rescue those of us who are wrestling with sin. He's able to keep what we've committed to him against the coming day of judgment and accountability. He's able to save us completely. And my favorite benediction, he's able to present us faultless before his throne someday with exceeding joy. God's qualified 
because he's holy. He's qualified because he's almighty. And he's qualified to rule our lives because he's eternal. He's the one who is and was and is to come. Briefly, that means that God never changes. There's no deterioration of his powers. There's no ebb and flow in the greatness of God. What he was to John on Patmos, he is to us today. I've never been in the desert in, around Mount Sinai. I, I don't wear a robe and I don't have a beard. And I had coffee waiting on me this morning when I got up because I had set the timer to go off the night before. There's nothing about Moses and me that ties us together, which I'm certain he does look like Charlton Heston. I'm just certain of that. But there's nothing that ties us together except this, that the God that spoke to Moses and said, I'm going with you, is the same God that speaks to us from this text today, the same covenant-keeping God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. And he's the same God who says, I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. It means that what he has ever been, he always will be to us. Put another way, as Revelation 1 would say, he's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. In a word, that means that he's the Lord of all history, micro and macro. And he's the Lord of our personal histories today. The affirmation of the living creatures calls us to give up the pretense and pretended illusion of being in control. There's only one qualified for that job, and it's not me, and it's not you. It's this great God whom we call our Father. Our personal lives are limited in every possible way. They're limited in space, in time, in knowledge, and in power. But God is not so limited. Therefore, He has us in His hands. We never have Him in ours. And could I suggest to you today, dear friend, that there's no safer place to be this very moment than in the hands of the living God with whom all things are possible. There's a third thing very quickly, and I left my watch on the front pew, so that's dangerous for both of us. All of us, I should say. There's a third thing in this text. Not, not just the appearance of the throne. That screams sovereignty. Not just the affirmation of the four living creatures. That tells us the qualifications of the one who sits on the throne. But notice, finally and quickly this morning in verses 8 through 11, the actions that take place before the throne. As the worship of the four living creatures takes place, it triggers a response in the 24 elders that should be ours as well. What happens? They fall before this throne. They get off their thrones and they fall before him who sits upon the throne In order to do that, they have to abdicate their own thrones. Something about seeing God's majesty and hearing his character adored that causes them to relinquish their thrones. They recognize, perhaps better than we in verse 11, that he's created all things. They recognize, perhaps better than we do today, that God is sustaining all that he has created. They not only get off the throne and fall before him, but the text says they cast their crowns before that throne as well. The word crown here, Stephanos, is the victor's crown. It's the crown that came in the successful completion of the contest. Whatever crowns we have, whatever gifts we have, whatever we allegedly possess 
has been given to us by the goodness and the kindness and the grace of God. And these 24 elders, whomever they may be, get off the throne and fall before his throne. And they take what God had given to them and they give it back. They cast it back before him. And they ascribe to him majesty and glory. Might we not abdicate our thrones today? Might we not give up that which we're so desperately clinging to and endeavoring to control and give it back to the Lord as an act of worship, submission, and devotion? Perhaps the most famous abdication in the 20th century took place when Edward VIII gave up in 1936 the pomp, the status, the pageantry of the British Empire. And why did Edward VIII give it up? Because his heart had been captured by an American woman named Wallace Warfield Simpson. And he could not have her as wife and retain the throne of England. A greater affection had captured his heart and he willingly abdicated the throne. I would suggest to you today as I suggest to myself today, That as God's Spirit works in us and our eyes are open to who's really in charge and who's only the only one qualified to be in charge, that our response would be to give up the pretense of our self-imposed quest for deity, to give up our thrones, to give up the, the longing to be in charge, to give up the lament of not being in control and to fall before this God and worship Him. The response of the four of the 24 elders in these verses reflect, I think, the stuff of real devotion. I think they reflect the real essence of worship when we gather on the Lord's Day and corporately sing praise to our God. They reflect the stuff of real devotion in our private moments as we pray, as we write in our journals. Whatever it is you're wrestling with today, this text says, get off the throne and give it to the Lord. Give it back to Him. I think the text comes in closing this morning as a challenge to those of us who like to be and long to be in control. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I suspect in a worship service this size, there's some of us who struggle with control issues. Well, this text comes as a challenge and says in very frank terms, you're not really in control. You're not qualified to be in control. There's only one who is. And he's holy. And he's almighty. And he is and was and is to come. Give it up and enthrone God as sovereign. This text would come as a comfort to those of us who lament the loss of control and feel overwhelmed by a list of uncertainties that seems to grow daily. This text comes to us as a comforting word and says, rest in me. Rest in me. Trust me. I think this text comes as a call to repentance for all of us, to repent of our fear. I have a bunch over which I could repent this morning, a laundry list of uncertainties and things that I'm grappling with. And it calls us to repent of our pride, of our unbelief. We don't know what tomorrow may bring, but we know who will bring tomorrow. And we can trust that this God, our God, will always do what is right and best for his people. Though we lack the wisdom always to interpret it in such a fashion. 
This text comes and poses a question to all of us. Will you give up? Will you submit? Will you surrender? Will you embrace this king? Will you worship this king as glad-hearted citizens of this king? It says, do so. Because he's eminently trustworthy and worthy. Of all of our worship. Of all of our submission. And of all of our obedience. Let's pray together. In this closing moment of prayer, there may be some things over which you know very well today. That you need to submit and surrender to the Lord. You can name it. You can name the person. You can name the event. You can name the thing. As an act of worship and submission today, would you give that back to the Lord? Would you say in the quiet of your own heart, Father, I give this back to you now. And pray only and always for your will to be done. Father, whatever the needs of our hearts today, your eyes are upon us and our hearts are open before you. And I pray that you would use this text in the power of your Holy Spirit to convict some of us of our quest for ownership and governance. And would you use this text to comfort those of us who feel that life right now is so out of control? And might you use this text to enlarge yourself by faith as we yield ourselves more consistently and fully to you and do it all for Christ's sake, for his honor, for his glory, and in his name we pray. Amen.